All right, if you want to make your way back toward your seat. I have just just a, a couple of um, a couple of kind of housekeeping items as you get settled in. The first the first is that if if you were here last week, um, you heard us begin the process of talking about VBS that's coming this summer. Um, but we're we're in the process of collecting. Uh, volunteers for that one was, and I felt like Joe did a pretty persuasive job of telling everybody in every service that everyone was going to volunteer sign up to volunteer for that and that didn't quite work out that way and so if I'm gonna say that again then if you weren't here last week and volunteers we'll have plenty of volunteers um, you can get more information if you weren't here last week and you're thinking, what are the dates even? You can get more information out at the Kids Point Welcome Center or on the website. Um, you can find Libby or Catherine. They'd love to talk to you more about what it looks like to volunteer that week. The second housekeeping item this morning is that our service is going to just look and function a little bit differently. We're going to do uh, a normal service, essentially, but sh- shrunk by about 10 minutes so that at the end uh, we can talk about... Um, our third year being involved with Team World Vision in the Kansas City Half and Full Marathon. And so um, we're going to work our way through Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. We'll spend some time worshiping in response. And then um, Alyssa and Eric Bayer will come and they'll explain to us and, and cast vision for what it looks like to run for clean water in Africa. So I'm going to pray. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Romans 6, 15 to 23, then we'll dive in. God, thank you for this morning for the chance to come and and to worship. Uh, Lord, for the truth in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors through Christ. And that, God, by our union with you, like we talked about last week, um, God, you see us in Christ, crucified, resurrected, reigning with him. And uh, Lord, that is a glorious, glorious truth that we want to be able to celebrate this morning, Lord, but we want to be able to celebrate that and live in light of that every day in our lives. Lord, I pray your spirit would just make your word come alive this morning. How would you speak powerfully to us here as we look at Romans 6? God, would you use the truth of your word to transform our hearts and transform our lives? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want us to just kind of have a big a full view of Romans chapter six before we look at the second half. And so if you'll actually open up to there and if you'll look one verse, two verses up to the very end of chapter five, because it's the last two sentences of Romans five that set up all of what Paul is doing in chapter six. Paul closes Romans chapter five by saying, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. A few weeks ago, uh, we talked that those words multiplied and multiplied even more. Sin abounded, but grace super abounded. Where sin is present, grace is greater. And Paul wants to make sure that we don't get a a wrong understanding of that grace. And so in chapter six, there are two parallel sections, verses one through 14, and then verses 15 through 23. 
And they both start with a very similar sounding question. So the first one that Paul dealt with in Romans 6, 1 was, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? That's what Jim walked us through a couple weeks ago. Do we just keep sinning a lot so that if sin multiplies, then grace can multiply even more? If grace is so much greater, why would we not just keep on sinning so that the world can see how much greater grace is? And Paul answers that with a resounding no. He says, absolutely not. Your translation might say, by no means. It's like the strongest way you can say no. And then he gives a reason for that. And he says, the reason or the picture of that is that it's impossible because you have union with Christ. And there's an image of that, of baptism. You were united with Christ when you received God's grace through faith in him. And I've probably over the last four, five months as we've been talking about Romans and I've been reading and studying, that idea of union with Christ has been uh, something that I, I, like, I can't stop thinking about. When we... When we talk about being followers of Christ and placing our faith in Christ, we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit coming into us and about that sort of indwelling and how powerful that is. And it is absolutely true. Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes into our brokenness and begins making us holy. And that's an amazing truth. But then... I think something I hadn't spent a lot of time considering is that every bit is true, is that we are in Christ. He takes our broken mess into his holy self and we are holy. And so we pursue holiness, we pursue this life of, of living like Jesus from a place of positional holiness. You're We've used this before, but you're, you're fighting for holiness from a place of victory. Like in the Lord's eyes, you have that. You are positionally holy before him. And Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes into you and begins making you practically holy in life. But that's not from a defeated state. I mean, I, I just like, I can't get that out of my mind. And Paul says, it's impossible that you would continue in sin because you've got union with Christ. You can't just do that. In this instance, Romans 6, 1 to 14, it's important to constantly remind ourselves who we are. We're one with Christ, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in a newness of life. So now Paul's gonna go on starting in verse 15 and he's gonna answer a similar but just slightly different question. So verse 15 says, what then? Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? The difference in those two questions. In verse one, it's should we continue? Do we just continually sin so the grace may multiply? Paul says absolutely not. In verse 15, he says, well, if we're not under the law, we're under grace, it's okay if we sin a little bit, right? We can just little bits of sin and that'll be fine. And Paul again, what's his answer? Absolutely not, by no means. And he's gonna offer a different picture that we're gonna see this morning. The picture last week was, or a couple weeks ago was baptism. The picture this week is conversion. He says, you are a slave to Christ. 
That word pops up all throughout this passage this morning. And he says, the gist here is that your obedience to either sin or your obedience to Christ proves your allegiance. And the question here is not just who you are. The question is whose you are. Whose? Who's the master? Paul's answer is, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then Christ is your master. You are his slave. And he gets down to Romans 6.23. Just let's look at that real quick. This is where our section is going to end this morning. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where sin multiplied, the wages of sin is death. We see that everywhere. The gift is even greater. Sin multiplied, grace superabounded. Whereas the wages of sin is death, the gift or the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's so much greater. So let's, let's kind of dive in. We're going to start to look at this. This passage this morning, Romans 6, 15 to 23, has led some of history's greatest theologians and thinkers to make some very, very bold statements about sin in the life of a believer. I'm going to put two of them up here. He who loves the things of flesh more than Christ does not possess Christ by faith. That's Martin Luther. F.F. Bruce says, grace does not stimulate sin. I could have put 20 of these up here from 20 different theologians throughout history who all make the same point that like Paul, if you were to ask the question, well, can't, can't I just continue to sin and not really feel bad, bad about it because of grace? Paul and all of these great thinkers would say, if that's what you think, then you don't understand grace. You don't understand what's happened to you by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. The end of this, the thrust at the end of this today is going to be the following. Because of our new life in Christ, living in continual, willful, unrepentant sin is both impossible, thanks to your union in Christ, that's 6, 1 to 14, and illogical. So let's read the whole passage and then we'll start to work our way through this. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching which was handed over, or to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Before we even really start to unpack this, I want to vocalize and just kind of acknowledge the contention that some in the room probably have. Are you saying that I should be sinless? Are you saying that after I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I receive God's grace, that I should live a sinless life? 
And I would respond in the same way that Paul does, which is by no means or absolutely not. But it does mean that it's impossible and illogical to presume upon grace. Because I know I'm going to be forgiven, I'll just sin. That's what Paul is getting at. He's not driving towards some sort of sanctified, sinless, perfect state. He's saying that you can't just presume upon grace, that it would be totally opposed to, it'd be antithetical to our salvation, that it would be antithetical to the idea and the, the entire notion and model of repentance, that it would be the exact opposite of living as salt and light in a broken world if we were to just say, well, because grace exists, I can just go on sinning. Okay, so your, your next question might be, Tim, isn't it true that grace is available when I do sin? To which I would say, yes, absolutely. That is certainly the case. But that does not mean that I just have at living however I want to. Romans 6 says that's impossible and it's illogical. And so let's, let's just walk through how it is that Paul arrives in this place. Romans 6.16 sets up this picture or this illustration of slavery. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Why does Paul pick this image? He used the image of baptism up above because it was something that all these Roman believers would have experienced. Everyone in the Roman church came to faith and they were baptized into that faith and it was something that everyone understood. He chooses slavery for the same reason. And as I've mentioned before, but it's worth saying again, he's not referring to the kind of race-based, personal property-driven, brutalistic, chattel slavery that we have in our history and that kind of operates as the framework in our minds. What Paul's referring to in the majority of cases was a form of debt slavery, where a person would offer themselves to another in order to pay off a debt that they didn't have the money to repay. And it's estimated that at different times in Roman history, up to a third of the population were currently living in that sort of debt slavery, and that up to a half of the people had either been a slave previously or were one currently. And that's all of that to say that there likely wasn't a person within the Roman church who hadn't had close personal contact with slavery. So just like Paul could talk about baptism, and he knew everybody understood that, he chooses to talk about slavery as the illustration, knowing that everyone understands that. And he draws on that image to bring out a couple of crucial points. The first one being this, you are certainly serving something. Jesus actually makes this claim himself. Jot down John 8, 34. Jesus says, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. This analogy and language that Paul is using is not something new. It's not something that he thought up. It draws upon a model that Jesus has already given us. So you either see, serve sin that leads to death, Paul says, or you serve obedience, which leads to righteousness. And we'll talk about this more in a minute, but Paul's not saying that you're saved by your obedience. It's important to keep that in mind. In verse 17, he talks about the gospel being what has changed us. In verse 22, he says that this is about God being the master, the one who has brought fruit, the fruit of righteousness to you and who's brought to you to eternal life. And so our tendency is to look at something like this and find a way out. Okay, I see what Paul's saying. Where's like, where's like my escape hatch? 
Where's the loophole whereby I get out of this? The one that we like to think of is, yeah, but there have to be more than two options, right? There has to be more than just either I'm constantly serving sin or I'm constantly serving righteousness. There's got to be some middle ground whereby I'm mostly serving righteousness, but sometimes we like to use the language of struggle, right? Sometimes I just struggle over here on the sin side of things. Like we want there to be this middle ground. Jesus, in Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he actually closes the Sermon on the Mount by making it very clear that there are not two, more than two options. There are only two gates and paths, right? Narrow and wide. Only two. Choose one. There are only two kinds of trees with two kinds of fruit. Good trees with good fruit, bad trees with bad fruit. There are only two kinds of foundations that you can build your life on. A solid one that's built on the rock or a shaky one that's built on the sand. All the way back in Matthew 6, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. He, he wants us to be very clear on that and so does Paul. You are certainly serving something and it can only be one thing. You either serve sin that leads to death or you serve in obedience to the gospel, to the Lord, and that leads to life. That's how slavery works, Paul says. It's illogical to think that something is even remotely possible. A person in Rome who is offering themselves as a debt slave offered themselves to one master, not two. It wasn't, I'm offering myself to work and pay off my debt to you, but I've also got this like side master. And so sometimes you might tell me to do something, but the side master might tell me to do something. And now we've got a problem. Paul's, that's illogical. You don't do that. The other point that Paul wants to draw out and what he's going to continue on is that as you're serving something, the way to tell who you're serving is not necessarily by what you say is your master, but by what your obedience proves your master to be. You can look at your actions, you can look at your obedience and see who your allegiance is to. And so in verses 17 through 19, Paul walks through what's happened in the life of a believer. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. That is the moment of conversion in the life of a believer. Watch what happened. Just walk through verse 17. Although you used to be slaves of sin, that's the starting point. You obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching that, to which you were handed over. So you heard the gospel, you believed, you received God's grace by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And then the beginning of verse 18, praise the Lord, you have been set free from sin. But something else happened. End of verse 18. You became enslaved to righteousness. You were a slave. You obeyed the gospel. You were set free to become a slave again. Because at your conversion, at our conversion, our master and our endpoint changed. Picture you're driving yourself down the highway. You're headed toward uh, St. Louis. You're on I-70, right? And there are exits just everywhere. I mean, you can take an exit like every few miles on the way to St. Louis. And at some point, you decide, you know what? I don't want to go to St. Louis. 
I want to go to Jefferson City. And so you arrive at, in Columbia and you take an exit. You get off of I-70 and you head a different direction. You're heading south now instead of what? Or instead of east. Your end point has changed, which means the things that you do have changed. When St. Louis was the endpoint, you had one direction and one thing that you were going to do in order to get there. When Jeff City became the endpoint, your endpoint changed, which meant everything that you did has changed. That's what Paul says happens when you converted. Conversion's a weird word to use here. We don't really talk about Christianity all this way all that much. But Paul says at your conversion, when you went from non-believing to believing, when you went from outside the church to inside the church, your endpoint changed from death to eternal life. And Paul says, that means your master has to have changed from the things that led you to death to the thing that leads you to eternal life. And that is Jesus Christ. It's illogical that anything else would happen in your life, which begs the question, does your obedience, do your actions illustrate that change? Do your actions illustrate that? Our obedience displays our allegiance. You can see who it is you're serving as your master by simply looking at who it is or what it is that you obey. Let me work through this another way. All who have received the grace of God through faith in Jesus had a moment of belief, a time when they obeyed the gospel from the heart. And at the 30,000 foot level, that moment of belief changed your master and changed your endpoint. Like intellectually, theoretically, like we can wrap our minds around that from a large standpoint. But look with me at verse 19. I'm using a, a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. No more serving sin on a downward spiral of greater and greater lawlessness that ends in a final and ultimate spiritual death and separation from the Lord. Paul says, instead, you're now serving righteousness, which leads to sanctification. So at a practical level, not 30,000 feet anymore, at three feet. What do you serve? What motivates you? What drives you? What causes you to do the things you do? What's the framework by which you make decisions? Legan Duncan is a pastor in Northern Virginia, and I recently heard him ask this question this way. He says, does your live match your believe? So at a 30,000 foot level, if you're a follower of Christ, we get it. Okay, Tim, I hear you. I totally understand. When I became a believer, I no longer serve sin and death. I serve Jesus Christ and righteousness out of obedience to the life that he has given me. I get that. At a 30,000 foot level, yeah, that sounds great. Let's worship and get out of here. Drill down. You believe that, but does your life match it? If you examine your actions, who does your day-to-day living say is your master? Continue on in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. This is, this is the paradox of Christian living. It's actually the paradox of all of human life. That there's a freedom that leads to death, but a slavery that leads to life. 
what appears to be freedom, pursuing sin, right? Living however we want is actually a life of slavery that leads to death. John Calvin says it this way. The greater mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol his freedom. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. This is absolutely the case for anyone who's not saved, but it's also true of the person who is saved, but is still enslaved by their allegiance to sin. No one is so quick to remind the world of the covering nature of God's grace than the person who is doing so in order to justify their continued sin. What appears to be slavery, though, to Christ, is actually a dying to yourself that leads to freedom. The death of Christ on the cross, right, was the death of sinful Adam inside of you. We talked about that last week. And it will fully come to fruition when you enter into heaven. But in that gap, there's something forming within you. And it's the image of Christ, the life of Christ. We live in this relativistic and morally subjective culture. And that thinking influences us all the time. Maybe you wouldn't come right out and say, I think all truth is relative, but we do bristle at the thought that God could tell us no to something and be loving when he does it. That there could be something inside of me that I want to do, that my heart wants to do, that my flesh thinks is right, and God could clearly, loudly say no to that thing and still be loving to us. We bristle at that. And yet it's absolutely true. He can be unconditionally loving and tell you that you can't do something or tell you that you should do something that you do or don't want to do on either side. So let me ask this question one more time. Does my live match my believe? Let me give you three areas of life that I think are particularly poignant within our culture that we need to think about this through. The first one is your calendar, and within that, your family. What does your daily agenda say about who your master is? What does your family's daily calendar say about who the master is within your life and within your household? We cloak this question in a very loving thing, serving and caring for our kids, wanting what's best for them. I'm not denying that that's a good thing. But... Your seven-year-old child who plays on three soccer teams and has practices five nights a week could get that college scholarship and never know Jesus. And then as you looked backward and you thought, who was the master here? What would the answer be? Your own desire to see your child succeed and whatever form of like validation that was going to give to you as a parent or the gospel. Now, is it sinful to play soccer? Absolutely not. Is it sinful to go to basketball tournaments, whatever the case might be? Absolutely not. But if that thing becomes more important to you and more important to your child than your relationship with Jesus Christ, then we do have a problem. Who's the master there? What matters most? I'll be even a little more pointed here. In my role as a coach at Liberty High School, I interact with, you know, a hundred or so students on a daily basis who are stressed and anxious and depressed and totally overwhelmed. And some combination 
of our culture and their upbringing has led them to believe that if they're not maximally successful at everything that they do, then they're somehow failure. That if they don't get the college scholarship, then they wasted all of this time. That if they don't go to like the division one school, then what was the point? Something has created that within them. It's cultural to an extent, but it can also be familial in your own house. Another activity, another practice is not the answer to that. The gospel is. That worth and satisfaction and value is there, not in slavery to an activity. Let me do another one. Conversation. What do your talking habits have to say about who your master is? I don't think anyone has come to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because they had the privilege of listening to you gossip about that guy at work or that woman down the street. I don't think anyone has heard you, you know, tell a joke that was maybe a little off color or engage in a conversation behind someone's back and heard you do that and thought to themselves, wow, Jesus must be real. Who do we serve in our conversation? Who do we serve with the things that we say? Are we serving the Lord and obedience to him, speaking words of life and encouragement and things that are righteous and holy and point to truth, or are we serving our flesh? I would like to build myself up by cutting this person down. I would like to get the laugh out of people that comes from this particular joke or whatever the case might be. And Again, theoretically, at a 30,000-foot level, we would all agree with what the right thing to do or to say is. But at a practical level, we've got to look at our actions and say, who did I serve there? Who was master? And a lot of times we can't do that on the front side. We've got to see the brokenness and try to address it on the back side and drill down into what's happening in our hearts. Let me give one more. What are your money habits Say it about who your master is. Are you serving your greed and lust for stuff or are you serving the Lord and his desire to make himself known in this world? Again, I don't think anybody has ever come to know Jesus Christ because your television was 65 inches instead of 35 inches. I'm not saying one size of TV is sinful and another size of TV is not. I'm saying that there's a matter of the heart going on there. Keeping up with the Joneses, right? Pursuing some materialistic view of what it is to live the American dream. That can very quickly turn into serving our own greed, serving our own lust, that we make ourselves slave to our money in our bank account rather than being slaved to Christ. Who am I obeying in these places? What does it say about who my master is? We want to give you a way to think about this over the course of this week. And so as you leave today, there are going to be these cards that have 12 questions on them. They're taken from a man named David Pallison off a list of 35 questions that he gives that he calls x-ray questions. They're designed to help us see what we did, drill down to why we did it, and figure out who we were serving in that thing. So we took that list of 35. We pared it down to 12. It's not limited to the three areas that I just gave you. It's about all the things that you do in life. 
We're encouraging you to take those and to spend from starting tomorrow through next Saturday, six days. If you just did two questions a day, we would all arrive back here in a similar place of understanding the real brokenness that exists within our hearts. We'd, we'd be really cheerful people. <laughs> but what we would see are very clearly the places in our lives where we're serving sin in our flesh rather than serving Christ in obedience. And that's gonna lead us into what we're gonna start next week. We did that kind of three-week session on mission-driven. We're gonna start a four-week little mini-session next week on what it means to pursue holiness. What does that actually look like in the life of a believer? And so if we could all set ourselves up in the same place, I think that would be particularly powerful. I'm gonna invite Leslie and Ryan and the worship team to come up. I wanna close with an illustration. It's something that I've thought about um, a lot as we've been preparing to do this pursuing holiness section. And it's that oftentimes I think that my own pursuit of holiness, my own living not enslaved to sin, but instead enslaved to Christ, is that I just wanna get to the place that's morally neutral. I'll just stop doing the bad stuff, right? The things that the Bible tells me not to do and just get myself to a place where I'm no longer overtly sinning by commission. I'm no longer willfully sinning. I'm also not necessarily always pressing to find the thing that's most righteous, most God-glorifying, and to do that thing. I become like a spectator at a tennis match. You ever watched, like you're watching the US Open or Wimbledon or the French Open or something on TV, and you just watch the crowd, right? The crowd in the background is just doing this. Like back and forth, like 80 miles an hour trying to follow the tennis ball, right? We become that when we just want to stop doing the thing that's most overtly sinful. Like we're just sitting in the crowd watching as righteous, holy people are trying to swing back, right, against the evil of flesh and Satan in the world. What we need to do is grab a tennis racket and actually start swinging for the sake of righteousness. We become a weapon of righteousness, like Paul said last week, an instrument of righteousness, not a spectator in what's happening in the world around us. To pursue holiness is to enslave ourselves to Christ, to see that freedom in life is found there, and then just opening ourselves up and saying, Jesus, do with me what you will. I will not serve sin and death. I will serve you in whatever you say it is that that looks like. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you became a believer, your master changed. Your end point changed. Paul says it's illogical to live as though that hasn't happened. And so we're going to press into that over the next few weeks, really see what that looks like, what, why, and how in the life of a believer again. Uh, but before we kind of move into that, we want to sit here and actually examine what is it that I serve? Who is it that I serve? What is my master? Who is my master? Our prayer is that the king of your heart is Jesus Christ. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails. Let the king of my heart be the thing that drives me in all ways. And so let's stand up and let's sing that prayer together as a church.